Hello, Sabrina, and welcome to the Beerjack podcast. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm pretty excited about finding out some more about the Brewers Guild. So, uh, as I said to you, I was chatting to my friend Finnish Remporium the other day, and he yep. just told me some really interesting things about the Guild, which I had no idea about. Uh, so I thought, well, I should <laughs> give Sabrina a call to find out more about it, um, yep. especially now that I run a brewery, strangely, with small gods. Um, yes. And then I thought, well, actually, it's probably a thing that a lot of our listeners would be interested in. We've got a lot of brewers that listen to the podcast and a lot of yep. home brewers and enthusiasts and drinkers. Uh, so I thought if we were going to have a chat about it, we might as well just stick a microphone on and record it for everybody. Well, you know, I'm super passionate about the Brewers Guild and the brewing industry, so I'm happy to talk about it um, anytime. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, well, yep. first of all, I'm going to ask you, what is the Brewers Guild? Uh, and maybe after yep. that, I'll ask you what, what your actual role is. So so what's the Brewers okay. Guild? So, look, the Brewers Guild is the industry association for all the breweries in New Zealand. And this year we're celebrating 15 years of the Brewers Guild, which I think is a pretty remarkable achievement. Um, and, you know, to put some context around that, um, the IBA in Australia and, and its predecessors, CBIA and various iterations, are celebrating 10 years. So the New Zealand brewing industry got together half a decade before the Australian brewing industry got mm. together or small brewing got together to say, hey, how do we work together? And, you know, I think that's pretty representative of how the New Zealand brewing industry is perceived here, but how it's also perceived abroad in terms of our forethought, our innovation. And so we had, um, you know, a group of folks get together uh, 15 years ago. Um, the constitution of the Brewers Guild was signed um, and filed by Richard Emerson out of Dunedin, which I think is lovely. And you know, I've been thinking quite a bit about sort of where the Brewers Guild came from, but I'm just going to kind of run through some of the folks who signed, you know, the original document to say, yes, we think there should be a Brewers Guild. Yeah. And it was Martin Bennett, who's now the owner of the laboratory in Lincoln, Ralph Bungard of Three Boys, Kieran McCauley of Brew Moon, Doug Michael of Gladfield Malt, Sean Harris, formerly of Rain Dogs. Uh, we had Brian from Renaissance Brewing. Uh, Mark White and Matt Thompson, who were at Harrington's. We've got Paul McGurk, who's still at Wigram. Luke Nichols of Epic Brewing. Jeff Griggs, uh, who I'm sure everybody from your podcast knows. And so, you know, there are a couple of others. But I really put that in context because I think, you know, those folks, many of them have still got breweries today, are brewing beer today, mm. but they had the foresight to think, how do we get together? So fast forward many years, um, we were in a voluntary organisation. So that means that all the work that was being done by the Brewers Guild was being done by volunteers on top of their day jobs, trying to run breweries and everything that that involves. And, um, and so in around 2016, 2017, I might have it off slightly, um, the board at the time decided to say, look, we really think we need to increase our membership fees so that we can pay for a person to really take this membership association to the next level. Um, and they had to increase the fees quite substantially, which obviously for small businesses is a challenge. Um, but was necessary if you actually wanted an industry association to 
do anything. Um, and so that was done based on a vote of, um, from our membership and then ultimately approved by our membership by, by them, quite frankly, paying in. Um, and so I was the person they hired um, as a result of that big change. Uh, and so I started with the, with the Guild in 2018, um, so just over three years now. And, you know, our mission hasn't really changed. Um, it's to be the industry association for brewers in New Zealand. Um, you know, we talk about celebrating the creativity and quality of beer at home and abroad. Um, and we provide a whole host of resources, and I'm happy to talk about those in more detail, to our members. We advocate to government um, on a whole range of topics. We run the awards. Uh, we, we do work around um, workforce. We do work around tourism. You know, I'm happy to talk about what our sort of top line um, strategic items are. Um, and we're here to answer questions and build community amongst the country's brewers. And so, you know, that's that's who we were created to be 15 years ago and that's who we are to the, today. And the way we do it might be a little bit different. What we offer might be a bit different. But, you know, we're sticking um, to, a, to the um, creator's vision, I guess. And you're the only employee at the Brewers Guild. So um, I am finishing right now as we know so um, I'm finishing up um, and my um, replacement or the person carrying the flag forward is Melanie Keys. so she's um, officially in the role as of last week uh, and she's full-time and then we have one part-time uh, person that's uh, Kelly Ockwell many of you might know her through various brewing roles um, and she's our membership services um, and events coordinator uh, and she's part-time. So everything that the Brewers Guild done, does is run by sort of 1.5 FTEs, um, full-time staff, uh, and during COVID, you know, we were all cut back. So we were sort of 0.7 of one person mm. <laughs> in terms of, um, you know, who was there to keep the lights on. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done for 1.5 FTEs. <laughs> Um, but you know, I always say we're in the exact same position as many of our smaller members where our ambitions are large. We know what we need to do. We just don't have the money and the people and the time to get it all done. Well, it sounds like a pretty big job. I love it. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's fabulous. I mean, the point is, um, it's, you know, it's entirely variable. There's lots of stuff to do. It's really difficult, um, but boy, does our craft industry deserve it. Our beer industry deserves to be well represented. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Uh, well, going back to the, um, to the, all those people that, that signed the Constitution 15 years ago. Yeah. In the broad strokes, what did that Constitution say? It basically said, um, we want an industry association to do all the things I just talked about help form government policy, um, help educate our members. Um, you know, really it's fundamentally the same of what we're talking about today. So what are some, well, I, I suppose in, in a timeline, uh, so before yep. you started in the, in the, uh, yes. the before Sabrina era, if you could talk us yes. through some of the, the major things that were instituted and set up by the Guild, and then just what have been some some big wins 
that, that you've been behind in the last few years? So I think, um, you know, the, the, the big wins for the Brewers Guild really early on. So um, the Brewers Guild created Beervana. Mm. So that was a product by the Brewers Guild that really spawned out of um, at a time when there were not beer festivals, there weren't other routes to market, there wasn't sort of a really clear understanding of craft, and you see me put that in inverted commas, mm. and we can discuss later, um, of craft. And, uh, you know, um, the Guild really set up this sort of what was Brew NZ and it was a multi-day industry event that was sort of capped off with a, um, a consumer-facing event. And I think, you know, Beervana, the Brewers Guild sold it to David Cryer. David Cryer sold it ultimately on to um, the Wellington Culinary Events Trust who own it today. Um, but it came out of a desire for brewers by brewers. Mm. And I think, you know, Beervana is an internationally recognised festival that exists off the back of the industry getting together and saying we should do this and having the foresight to do it. So I think that's a huge achievement um, that existed uh, before, you know, pre-2016, pre-2015. I think the other achievement is that we have breweries working together. So long before I came on board, one of the things that I love about the beer industry, and you might see this in your role, but brewers like, oh, I'm trying to do this thing. Does anybody know how to do that? And this network, this closer network um, of pe- of breweries, obviously that is quadrupled <laughs> of small craft breweries is quadrupled in the time. But you know, having a place to go where you could phone some up and say, "Can I have help with this?" Um, I think has a legacy in the way that we go about it today. Today it's a Facebook group where our members can ask questions and share information or make phone calls or ask us. But, you know, back then it was a, a visit into somebody else's brewery. Hey, mate, can you help me? Um, and then, you know, there were bits and pieces around lobbying um, and, I, and I use lobbying, you know, we don't have a lot of time and they're volunteers, but certainly making government aware of various issues. Um, and then... You know, I think maturing as a, as a group to the stage where we decided to hire someone and become a professional industry association was a huge step. It, it required our members to put put money down and, and for our largest brewery members, um, very significant uh, fees. Mm. And so the fact that we've survived as an organisation through everything as a joined up organisation, I think is a massive achievement. I think community is such a key part of it. And I think the community yeah. is, um, when you have these hubs, when lots of brewers and industry people get together around a festival like Beervana and other festivals and things like the Guild Awards. Uh, and because, of course, brewers, a lot of them are small business owners and they're, they're busy people. Yeah. So yep. If you've got a brewery in Paraparaumu, you, you're not travelling to the, the Hawke's Bay in Keri Keri to go and see yep. people. I mean, if you happen to be in that area, of course, you might drop in and see the, the brewery. But um, but just having those times, so that those first beer varnas must have been wonderful. Oh, I, I mean, I, I think it's the same. So we had, um, obviously, you know, skipping forward to 2021, but we had our um, awards this year. Mm. And even running the judging, I mean, you know, we were short of 
people we you know people were locked down and we weren't sure if we could have it and then we were only allowed to have 50 people in the room and then with all of that stuff going on we ran the awards and the awards nights are excellent but for me every year the bit that I love the most is the stewarding room mm. so that is the back of house the people that are working, standing, you know, 12 hours a day, organising the beer, getting it ready and, and serving it to the judges, that is my one of, like, the moments that makes my, my heart sing for the brewing industry because there is so much professionalism, collegiality, um, you know, big, big brands, small brands, suppliers, distributors, everyone working together to do this task essentially as a group of volunteers. But we get to share meals together, you get to chat, and the connections that get formed there, like you see them later on in the industry. And so, as you say, you know, those little moments where we get to come together and it's frankly not about um, serving the consumer <laughs> we get together come together as an industry and not worry about being judged or having to do that small talk over the bar or sell your product or do any of those things you just get to sort of talk to people who are in similar situations as you are today or who have may have been in that situation in the past it's just so invaluable and little nuggets of information get shared and it's just I love it who could be a steward um, anyone can be a steward. Uh, that being said, so um, we run a steward to judge program, which if you ask me about achievements instituted since I joined, um, the Brewers Guild launched that in 2018, uh, which is the first awards that I was responsible for running. And the purpose of that is to, um, you know, really cast a net far and wide and said who say who's interested. Um, and so we definitely... Um, prioritise folks who are working in the industry and, in fact, people who are working in sensory roles um, for people who want to move through that steward-to-judge program. Um, and, and I say program, but it's a bit more of sort of doing your time, working on your sensory and moving through. Um, but we run an expressions of interest program every year. That's advertised anywhere. Yeah. Anyone can submit their names. This year... Across stewarding and judging, we received over 100 applicants at for what was 72 spots and then ultimately had to be cut down to 50 and then bumped again when we were allowed. So, you know, that shows you that the interest is coming from... It's pretty broad interest and so not everybody gets selected, um, but, um, you know, it's certainly an open process. Brilliant. Um, and I noticed some yep. comments from Pink Boots this year about diversity in the judges. Yeah. It, so it seems like that would have been a really challenging thing just to pull judges together anyway without being able to get people from the north of the North Islands and from Australia. Yeah, look, um, to say I was disappointed in some of the comments that went to Pink Boots would be an understatement mm. because, um, you know, part of having a transparent steward-to-judge process is... The, frankly to open it up and make sure that we have a diverse pool of judges um you know going beyond just women but obviously women are an important part of it um and then you know despite our best efforts um there are women who are pregnant and don't think they should be consuming beer there are women who for other reasons uh, were unable to attend at short notice there are plenty of women who were locked down across the country mm. um and so i just don't think it's as simple as saying there weren't 
women there. Um, and equally, you know, I want to push back and say diversity is extremely important. At the end of the day, we need to make sure that we have a high caliber judging pool mm. so that we can give the beer entrance the best um, possible feedback and a fair experience for their for the product that they've submitted. And um, there are not as many senior experienced beer judges Yet. Um, in, in New Zealand at this time. Um, that's not to say there won't be. Um, that's to say that, you know, all of this does is highlight this big structural challenge that we're facing, mm. um, which we need to be working on. But, you know, I think energy should be focused on how do we solve the big structural problem. Yes, rather um, than throwing and stones. And so rather than throwing stones. And I know, speaking to Pink Boots and some of their committee, um, you know, certainly the way that some of the language was used, that's not what they meant. They were actually meaning to sort of say, look, we know they tried mm. um, and it's not that simple. But as usual, I always joke, you know, Twitter and Facebook comments aren't the place to explain complex structural problems. <laughs> You know, things get lost in translation when they're written in 180 characters or whatever it is. So. Well, for the future, it does seem like there are, there are a lot of women that are coming through uh, this, this yep. stewarding program. Yeah, there are. And I definitely think, you know, it's always going to be time. Um, but, you know, I, I always talk about, like, Lion has produced a large number of women going through the process, mm. but equally we can't have too many folks from any single brewery either. So, um, you know, some of our largest breweries are doing some of the, and have been for a long time, doing some of the best work in terms of bringing a diverse group of people through. Um, but as a competition, we have to make sure that the number of people are balanced. So, you know, um, I am hopeful that, you know, in, in five, ten years' time, this conversation will look entirely different. But I also think that we need to be thinking about um, various other aspects of diversity and how those folks are included or at least recognised and brought through um, all aspects of the beer industry. Well, um, thinking about festivals and, and, yes. and back to that, <laughs> um, that first beer barner, which obviously you yep. weren't at, I imagine. I was not at, no. 2000 and, well, it's sort of 2006, 2007-ish. So it's sort of, I don't think the branding for Biavana came out until 2009, 2008, 9. But certainly, you know, what became Biavana was started that early. Well, I, um, I moved to New Zealand maybe 12 years ago. So I was certainly going to lots of beer festivals in Britain 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, yeah. there were more the sort of like real ale sort of things and the bee. Yeah, you know, a, a Shire horse drinking a pint and all these, um, you know, fusty old men with two half pint glasses and all drawn from the world. Cool. But it was, it was definitely a thing about there'll be hundreds of different beers to try. It would have been more real yeah. ale rather than craft beer back 12 years ago. But um, uh, it, it was a bit of a mix. And it, yeah, as I say, there, there was some good music playing and it was just all about the yeah. liquid and just hearing all about, you know, how different things are brewed and the ingredients and suppliers were there. Yeah. And then I moved to New Zealand, and I'm trying to remember the name of the first beer festival I went to in Auckland. 
and maybe it was just called the Great Auckland, no, it was called the Auckland Beer Festival, and it was down in the waterfront, yeah. and, or maybe it was... It wouldn't have been a part of what was Auckland Beer Week, organised by Sober? Mm, I doubt it very much. I think, or maybe it was an okay. LSD race course even. Um, but anyway, <laughs> it was awful, and I was so <laughs> shocked as a beer fan to come to this new country and be excited about yeah. a festival. And it was just a huge piss up. And there was like dance music pumping and it was just like completely against what I'd always thought of as a beer festival. It was just a, a piss up yeah. party with plastic glasses. And and to yeah. see what's happened with, um, I suppose, you know, Gab's has a great party atmosphere, but it is a, um, it, it is a focus on the beer and how good beer yeah. barner is and then things like winter ales and uh, the, yeah. the different smaller festivals that are so great. Um, so I imagine that's probably changed a lot, even in your time, the, the way that festivals look. Yeah. Look, I think it's evolving all the time and, and it's really interesting because I think there's sort of, um, you know, there's push between how do we bring more people to beer? Mm. So I always think it um, – so Matt Kierkegaard from Brews News talks about this a lot. He says, um, you know, we all always say a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So if we bring everybody to craft beer, if one is doing well, everybody does better. But his point is who's bringing in the tide? And so there's this question that says how do we actually expose craft beer beyond the craft beer drinker um, or beer beyond the beer drinker? And so festivals kind of evolve to have all of these other aspects to mm. them that says, hey, look, if you don't, if beer is not your first choice, but a bunch of your mates are going, why don't you come along? Because you can have wine or seltzer or hard kombucha or whatever the next thing is going to be. And you can listen to some music and, you know, it'll be really cool. And so part of that is, I think, trying to broaden the overall customer base. Mm. And so diehards like yourself might go, oh, no, no, this is a watered down, this isn't about the beer anymore. But somebody who's like, I wouldn't normally drink beer might pick up a sour and go, you know what, I don't hate this. And then all of a sudden their mind is opened to beer as a category. And so I don't know that there's a right answer um, in terms of how to do it because we know that, you know, beer, craft beer is extremely competitive and so bringing more consumers to beer as a category is one of the only ways, um, you know, to make sure there's enough pie to go around. Well, I, th I think it's probably exactly in the middle uh, is the best place to yeah, be. So, yeah. so one end of the spectrum is those fusty old men sipping mild and talking about decoction mashes. And the other end of yes, the spectrum yeah. is people getting wrecked and drinking irresponsibly and... Uh, yeah. Oh, look, and I don't think, to be fair, I, I don't think the industry wants or needs the latter of those. God, no. Right? Like it, I just, it's very illegal for starters. I, I, <laughs> I know. And it's really interesting because, um, you know, when I try to organise events for the Brewers Guild, you know, it's hard. Hey, I've got 75 brewers coming in. So this is, you know, mm. awards di dinners or something. And I always say, look, but don't stress because our people know more than anything what good drinking habits look like, what safe practices look like. Mm. They want that. Their businesses only exist if they follow licensing laws. Mm. So, 
you know, I don't think we want that, but I do think we want, as you say, something down the middle. I think um, Gab strikes a good balance of trying to educate and trying to do this. I know, um, uh, I know, Biavana does more and more around the education pieces. I mean, Harpy um, a couple of years mm. ago was a great example of uh, introducing new beer, but having that industry education component. Yep. Um, and the smaller beer festivals that are out in the more local communities. I mean, we've got Great Kiwi Beer Fest here in Christchurch that is a little more outdoors and it's got the band and it's got all of that, but it does have the trade ed- the education tent and that's, you know, always well attended. March Fest does as well. So I just think, you know, everybody's trying to find that balance and sometimes punters, uh, you know don't necessarily come along for the ride in the right way. Do you have a favourite beer festival that you've been to? Um, in the world? Oh, in the world? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I don't even know what it was called, but I went to a beer festival in Vancouver that was just spectacular, mostly because of the location. Um, I love... Uh, the great Kiwi Beer Fest in Christchurch, but that's because that's where I am based. Mm. And so it's a little bit, you know, I get to Lime Scooter there and everybody comes to my town. And so there's a little bit of that. Um, and then, of course, you know, Gab's Melbourne is a bit of an institution. Bivana, the Friday session. Yeah. You know, the industry day. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the best. So I don't know. I, look, there's a, there's a beer festival for all occasions. Um, well, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the awards that happen every year. Well, not 2020, yep. but every other year. Every other so what's year. The, so, what's the point of the awards? Yeah, so the point of our awards is a little bit different, for example, to the New World Beer Insider mm. Awards. So our awards are structured in the same way as World Beer Cup out of the US, um, as the AIBAs, and they are very much an industry award uh, awards program. So it is about giving feedback to entrants about how their beer stacks up. um, And I I want to be careful how I explain this because it's how that beer stacks up against the style class that it's been entered Mm -hmm. against, not as against every other beer that's been entered. So each beer gets judged on its own merits against essentially the style that it's been entered in. And that has very clear boundaries um, and, and I'll come back to that in a second. And so the point of that is, um, you know, we get to say what is the best Pilsner. And so that once we get to the trophies, that is a bit of a comparison as between, but really it's about those criteria. And it's so that breweries can understand where they're pegging themselves and the quality and the beer that they're making as against one another. And it should give consumers confidence that the beer that they're selecting, if it has a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze or, in fact, a trophy, is, you know, one of the best examples of that style beer that you can get in the market. So um, that's what the awards are. Mm. They're blind judged. Um, So every beer is judged by a table of judges. They're judged blind. So uh, this year we received... 836 entries, I think 832 were judged. Uh, In the past, the year prior to 2019, I think it was 904 beer entries, 956 with cider. And um, every single one of those beers is individually labelled. 
So there's a firewall between the way that the entries are received and the way that they're numbered, organised and fed out to the judges. Um, they're blind tasted, they're scored um, and, and nobody knows the results other than me until, <laughs> until they're released to the public. Um, and, you know, this year, uh, so we use the US Brewers Association style guidelines mm. as the basis for our competition. Um, we've done that for many years. It's in essence the same style guidelines used by most of the large competitions around the world, although I note the UK uh, tends to still work on the BJCP guidelines more often. Um, and um, so this year we had 122 different styles entered into the awards. Um, so that gives you a pretty good flavour about the variety of beer available to consumers in the New Zealand market. Um, and, um, you know, we as an organisation group the styles into trophy classes. Somebody gets awarded a trophy and ultimately all the trophies get tasted off again for best beer. And so that's the process. Um, it seemed like a lot of the uh, category winning beers were more hoppy than one might expect for style guidelines this year oh interesting so the um the lager category was won by an india pale lager the yeah Umbra right dark ale was won by a dark ipa the pale ale was won by an ipa <laughs> and yeah so i would have to have a look at so of course within the trophy category so within a trophy style class there are many uh, individual styles that would make up that trophy so it would depend so that beer style might have been the best in class for that particular sub style I don't know if I'm explaining that well but the um, oh, okay so of course so Umbra and Dark Ale contains 15 different six or seven yep. different types of Amber and, Amber and yeah. Dark Ale and so what happens is the gold medals are awarded um, and then those beers are retasted for the trophy round and they're retasted again against the criteria that they're entered into so you might be um, tasting two golds that were actually entered into two different classes and you're not tasting them as against each other you're tasting them against the box that they were entered in under Okay, so, so it happens... The, the, the rules. So it happens to be... So, so rather yep. than it being the judges having a preference to more hoppy beers, it's actually Correct. that brewers are making super fantastic hoppy beers here in New Zealand. Correct. For obvious reasons. I think that would be a fair assumption. Mm. Um, I do know that uh, when I was talking to Dave afterwards, and I don't want to misquote him... So I'll see if I can find it. But I'm pretty sure he was saying he felt that the freshness was up yep. on a lot of the beers, which um, which I think is consistent with... So freshness is up, the hops are um, more obvious is, is the best way that I can think to explain that. Um, was well, some of the beers so were released think, the day before the awards. So that... Yep, so they have to be um, commercially available. Mm is one of our criteria. And that's, yeah, a, a smart way to enter the competition, to uh, release a beer in your brew pub uh, very, very soon before the awards happen. Yeah, and, and look, um, people joke about it all the time, but um, 
you know, we have to check, we can spot check a beer. You know, if I see something come through that I haven't seen before, for example, or one of our stewards goes, I haven't heard of that. We can do a quick check and see whether it's available in the marketplace. Um, and, um, but there is nothing preventing every single brewery from holding back and brewing to a time schedule that is to make sure that their beers come out, uh, ready to send in the day that they're due to be sent in. Um, and certainly breweries contact us three months ahead of time, four months ahead of time and say, do you have your schedule? So people are very clear on how to make the most out of an awards opportunity. Yeah, smart. Well, those those sort of things must be so much easier now that Untapped is around, hey? In terms of checking for us, absolutely. Checking everything, checking whether it's commercially available. And, you know, like commercially available can mean a couple of kegs over the bar, right? Mm. Like we haven't set minimum thresholds for what constitutes commercially available. Um, but it, but we are making sure that that brewery has got a commercial license to operate as a brewery manufacturer. So you're not a home brewer making it at home and saying, I've handed it to my mates and that's getting entered. Um, that's not who we're targeting with our competition. It's definitely for people who intend to be commercial breweries selling to consumers. Were there a great homebrew competitions that operate completely separately for that? Absolutely. We have a really great, very strong uh, homebrew competition in New Mm. Zealand and, um, you know, they judge under slightly different guidelines to us, but for all intents and purposes, they provide excellent feedback to entrants for how to improve. So, you know, there's a space for that. And and, and many of our small microbreweries, brewers, started as uh, homebrewers. So um, there was one trophy that I know uh, a lot of beer fans had questions about, people who are not yes. judges and don't know about stewarding. So maybe you could, uh, you could talk them through the winner of the speciality and experimental class. Yeah, so we're talking Spates Mid-Ale, we're talking Spates aren't Mid-Ale, we? Yeah, the yeah. Best so... beer in the category. <laughs> so Spates Mid-Ale, so sort of back to the, the structure of the competition. So we take all of, we, the Brewers Guild, um, and our judging advisory panel, take all of the US Brewers Association style guideline beers, along with a couple that are um, New Zealand specific. So we, the Brewers Guild, have created the style guidelines for those. And we organise them all into trophy classes. And the goal of the trophy classes is to sort of try and keep like to like, um, you know, keep a bit of balance to the competition in terms of where the volume of entries are coming in um, and to make sure that our competition stays relevant, um, both for consumers but also for um, for our brewers. And so we review that competition every year. This year we introduced the Juicy Hazy because, you know, we'd just seen that massive explosion mm. there. But the Spates Mid-Ale was, introdu- was entered into um, our style guidelines so this is one owned by the brewers guild created by the brewers guild called other low alcohol ale or lager um and that's because there isn't something for that's uh that grouping of beers um in the u.s style guidelines so other low alcohol ale or lager is included for our purposes in a specialty and experimental trophy category because it's a specialty style class mm-hmm. um and spates mid ale is judged against the parameters of that style 
So it says, are you a really good example of a other low alcohol, other low alcohol ale or lager? Yes, you are. You get a good gold medal. And then you taste the gold medals, uh, other gold medals in that uh, trophy class. Uh, but again, you're not tasting them as against each other. You're tasting them as against the criteria. And so they've said, of all of the beers, we think this is the closest, best example of the style that they've entered under. And it happens to be specialty experimental, which I'm sure everybody was hoping was a chocolate, marshmallow, nitro, something, something. Um, and instead it's Spates Midale. And, um, you know, it's kind of hilarious. It is the talk of the being a new category for low and no alcohols with all the brilliant yeah. beers yeah. coming out? Absolutely, there is. Um, you know, so each year we review the competition. So other low alcohols. So we introduced this. Uh, I have to be honest, I've tried to have a look at when it first came into the star guidelines, mm. but I know it goes back from the Brewers Guild as back as far as 2017 at least. So it's been in there a while. Um, but certainly, you know, there's another another style class in there called Session Beers and that's growing. Um, and so I do think... You know, we've already had discussions about is that another space where um, there is significant enough growth uh, and there's a, a difference. So, for example, there's even a difference in the way you, you create a, a no-alcohol beer to give it its own category. That being said, there's also conversations around what is the breadth of our awards mm. um, and... We used to have cider involved and we had cider for many years, many, many years, because our many of our brewers produced cider. Um, however, Cider New Zealand has since, you know, really increased uh, the prominence and their competition and we felt, you know, there was no need for us to be in that space and they were the experts in that space. Mm. We're the experts in beer. Um, but we were certainly approached, will you be adding seltzer? Will you, um, does hard kombucha qualify for X? What about X? And so I think there is this sort of question about how long is a piece of string and, and where do we stop and where do we finish? And um, depending on how you make no alcohol beer, is it even beer um, or is it? So, you know, th there's a bit of a, philosophical and practical conversation to be had around it um but yes it's definitely on the radar well that's been a big trend uh well i suppose worldwide uh, non-alcohol beers over the past couple of years yep. and it's just in time for this summer i think a few brewers are really embracing it and there's just some great packaged no-alcohol beers coming out what it's it's an amazingly complex area for regulators, breweries, and us as sort of sitting in between to really get our head around. Um, and I know it's a complex conversation that's happening everywhere at the moment. So that's a big trend we've seen just recently. Uh, what are some of the other major changes that you've seen in the New Zealand brewing scene since you've been doing your job? Um, look, I definitely think the introduction of new hops. So we, you know, we saw Nectaron. Yeah, amazing. Um, and great to see Ron win the award. Yeah, it was amazing. And, um, you know, I think that's a testament to many, 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 many years and many people. But, um, mm. you know, I definitely think uh, 
you know, there've been changes in New Zealand hops. Um, there's been the, um, creation of harpy research, uh, that has been supported or co-funded by government. And so I do think there is this real understanding now about the value of, um, uh, of the terroir of our, uh, New Zealand hops. Um, and, and that has, uh, you know, pushed a shift into the way beers are created and conceptualized in New Zealand. I definitely think, you know, other trends, and this isn't drink specific, but the, the trend to, um, the trend to can yeah. as the, as the predominant packaged product when I, um, started was still much more heavily reliant on bottle, the shift to can and the shift quite frankly, to sort of every beer has its unique design. Um, that has just exploded in the time that I've been with the Brewers Guild. Mm. So those are things that are around the outside, I suppose. Um, oh, it's still key parts uh, and to the business. Key mm. parts to the business. And look, I'm really hoping. I think I don't want to be in the predictions game because I might be wrong. Um, but I've been saying for a couple of years, like, I think multi-beers are going to have their heyday again. I think... Um, you know, the trend to craft was, you know, extreme hops. And I think we're all kind of, people are coming out the other side looking for a bit of a lager, looking for something a bit crisper and maybe even looking for some malt forward beers. So I've been saying that for a couple of years. I definitely think the lager thing, lager pilsners, lighter beers is um, taking off. And I think you're certainly seeing that reflected in the Australian market. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a wave that's coming, which makes sense. It's been 15 years of all throw as many hops in as you can and now I think we're sort of starting to think on that more maybe balance balance nuance side well as somebody that's just brewed a Christmas pudding barley wine uh, I hope you're right (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh well I I, look it's funny because I love like I mean I'm sure you're going to ask me I I never say who my favorite beers are and what my favorite beers are because I don't want to I love all my children equally. Mm-hmm. I want all my breweries in New Zealand. But I absolutely love craft work yep. out of um, Omaru. And I don't think, you know, I just, that's a lovely style. And my favourite um, wild fermented are all the deep creeks. Mm. So I just love them. And, you know, that's just a personal preference. Um, but I find it hard to go past them. I think we definitely are seeing um, as much as... Well, it always starts with people like you and I that are sort of the, the bleeding edge geeks uh, and maybe the sales aren't perhaps huge, but all us people in this yeah. area are, you know, huge fans of, you know, Roselaire and these sort of beers. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely hearing a lot more talk about, and I suppose more more commonplace European style. So things like Hellas yeah. or uh, Witch yep. Beer even. Um, yeah. And it's just really nice seeing, uh, I think, I think there have been three different Rauk beers released this year, which is yeah. wonderful to see. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I still think there's a beer for everyone, right? You know, like you might not want, you might want a, what's the new one? Dry, double dipped, dry hop. Tell me what that's called. The double, what's it called? Not double dry hop. Like, no, oh, but it's like a, it's a dipped dip hops. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, dip hop, yeah. <laughs> that's what I saw in my 
that's what I saw in my mind. And I was, I saw the D and I kept going, yeah, dip hop. So that's coming, right? That's a new thing. Um, yeah. And so there are people who always want to play in that space and want to do that. And, you know, the West Coast IPA challenge has been going forever mm. and, um, the beers that come out of that are well received. And then there's people who want a light lager. There's people who want a, a Ralph beer, you know, there's a beer for everyone. Yeah, I think hops are never going to go away. People are always going to love hoppy beers. They are the king. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and I think earlier when you were talking a little about, bit about uh, diversity and trying to get everybody to, to beer festivals or around beer, but, but also different kinds of beer are pretty interesting. Absolutely. And, and when I just in our bar, the Fridge and Flagon, it's, it's often that someone comes to the bar and says, oh, I don't like beer. But, yeah. but what almost everybody is actually saying, I don't like shit macro beer that tastes like water and I don't like bitter hops. But everything apart from those two narrow areas, they're fair game. So if you give this person a yeah. roasty porter or a raspberry kettle sour, they're, they're into it. And I think that's the point around... Um you know, part of the reason that I love beer, and this is sort of, you know, a little bit, um, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit naive, maybe it's a little bit sort of pie in the sky, but, you know, I think beer is the drink for every man, every woman. Like there is a, there is a beer out there for you and breweries are welcoming places. We are not snooty wine bars and don't get me wrong. I love a wine bar. I can fit right in a wine bar, but it just feels like, there's a space for everyone in beer and, you know, the work that the Guild has been doing around diversity, around a, a whole heap of things, um, is about making sure that consumers know, that people who want to work in beer know um, that there's a, there's a beer for you and there's a place in beer for you. And I just think that that's so important. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you're right. Um I really like, so Brick Lane out of Australia has sort of said they they don't, there's a beer for every experience. That's the way that they sort of approach that idea of, um, you know, a beer for every person. And I like different beers for different experiences. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, and sometimes I want to have a wine. I mean, <gasps> I get... M- I know, I get mocked because about three quarters of the way through drinking beer, I'm like, I need a red wine. I have to have it. And there's a couple of people in the industry who keep their eye on me and know that I'm about to have a red wine and then mock me endlessly. And then I can go back to having beer, but I just need a little bit of a palate cleanser in between. Yeah, just resetting. <laughs> yep, just resetting. <laughs> uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about, so of course the Brewers Guild, yep. it's a talking of inclusivity uh, the brewers guild is yep. for all breweries of every size correct um everyone yep. that's making beer in new zealand is encouraged to join the guild uh, but commercially every commercial brewery yeah. yeah so we've got um you know the new zealand industry in terms of number of breweries is around about oh look the numbers get tossed around you know 220 240 um, I saw someone publish the other day 270 mm. um, number of breweries in the country. That's massive per capita. It just means that in New Zealand we have a really large number of breweries producing less than 50,000 yeah. litres a year, which is very, 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 very small. Mm. <laughs> and that's I don't say that with any 
amount of derision. I just say that we have to understand sort of our context in a global context and where everybody sits because what we call a large brewery is still a small to medium-sized brewery in the US and maybe even in Australia. So we're different in New Zealand in that people decide to be commercial breweries with very, very small uh, production mm. sizes, and that's fine. Um, certainly, and, you know, and again, I think you and I have talked about it before, but, you know, there are models that work for that size of production, which is which are definitely financially viable. And so that's, um, you know, maybe you're semi-retired, maybe you have another job, but you want to produce that amount. Um, maybe you just want to have enough to service your very, very small tap room that you only have open once a week. That That's, um, we saw, so we instituted a, you know, without going into too much of the structure, but we instituted a microbrewery category this year for the Brewers Guild. So we'd, we've always had sort of small, medium and large and, and the sizes of those have changed uh, and that scale helps us to a understand the market but b is how we charge our fees so we scale our fees according to your size of production and that's in an attempt to keep it accessible for everyone Mm. but we instituted a a new group for micro under fifty thousand liters and it was one of the spaces that we had the highest take up of new members or members that were in that space shift downwards because of covid um and so you know the the benefits, the the resources and the benefits that the Guild provides um, really scale across all of those business sizes. And if you ask me personally, are really in that space for small, you know, micro to small is definitely where we've skewed with some of um, our resources in the past. Um, Well, with those, um, the little brewers, they um, so one thing that I feel fairly strongly about is the the larger own breweries that are owned by Asahi and Heineken, um, mm-hmm. tying taps, which is where yep. a in case our listeners don't know, it's where a brewery pays money directly to a a bar owner, so they effectively own the taps and no other breweries are allowed to pour beer through them. So so that means that the majority of hospitality venues are contractually obliged to only pour beer from Lionel DB and other breweries don't get a look in. I, I, I don't think that's fair. What are your thoughts on that? Um, look, I think that's easy to say, but there are many of our small to medium independent breweries who are doing exactly the same thing. Okay. So... Um, Pay to play. So I, I don't want to call out any names but I can certainly tell you in certain regions there are um, breweries who do who are independent so not foreign owned Mm. um you know because I think we've got to break down the problem right so I think to your point access to market um which is what you're talking about I well which is sort of part of the tide taps problem um I think is a challenge um I think um people are using there are breweries out there using the same tactic themselves. Mm. There are breweries out there who are creating um, multiple chains of um, bars and restaurants and um, pubs and taverns. So say that's the same. Well, that's um, the old fashioned way of doing what, it, right? That's, you know, Fuller's and all these huge it, pubcos. Start their own it, pub. it, look, and that is still a business model that if you can find enough capital, you can do in there. And there are mm. 
breweries in New Zealand that are doing that. So I think that's one thing. I also think the second place, which is, you know, tied taps are a problem um, and without sort of weighing into the, the, the conversation too much, but, you know, this, this question right now around um, a supermarket duopoly, mm. when supermarkets are the largest purveyor of our packaged product, you know, I, I think that deserves a huge amount of attention as well. And so... Uh, because it is very difficult for small breweries to get shelf space. Yep. Um, and in fairness, it's difficult for medium and large-sized craft um, to make sure that their product is handled appropriately mm. in retail. Um, so, you know, it might not be fair, um, whichever way you cut it. On the other hand, um, they are also much older businesses in New Zealand and there is something about you know if you ask me I'm going to start a brewery today in today's market in New Zealand there are only a couple of models that are going to work because it is an intensely competitive market space and so if we go back to it's not a passion it's a business in what other industry do you get to say actually I'm going to come in with the exact same product in a highly competitive market space and I deserve to be in front of consumers. you got to scrap everybody else out of the way to get there. And so I think that's part of the challenge. Well, the tie taps, um, though, just to, to sort of really linger on this point for a bit, that's it's illegal in other countries. So in Britain and the States, I'm, I'm, you can't buy a tap. So that's it's not just who's got the best beer, who's got the best prices, who's got the nicest reps. It's just simply an agreement that happened with a bar 10 years ago. And that's continuing. And, and in Auckland, where I live, there's a dozen bars that sell good beer that I want to drink because everyone mm-hmm. else is bloody tired. I, I live in Kingsland, which is in the middle of the, <laughs> the Auckland Beer Mile that I created. Yeah. And in, in yep. my little suburb of Kingsland, of course, we have the Fridge of Flagon up the road. We have uh, Garage Project and Chirley's and Urban nearby. But none of them are actually in Kingsland because they're all tied houses. There's not a chance of anyone pouring independent beer there. So I think that's, you know, so let's, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm saying let's understand why a publican might choose to go down that route if they wanted to have a sustainable business model for their individual pub. And what would that be? It would be that they get set-up costs, they get fit-out costs, that they can... um, you know, make margin on the beer. And look, I know that that's a, that's a point of conversation around whether that actually works out to be true or not in the long run. Um, but some publicans, when they choose to set up and making that choice in hospitality businesses, and I would say that during COVID, you know, the amount of work and support that those large breweries had to do to keep restaurants and hospitality businesses alive at all and we talk about the hospitality businesses like it's not Fred and Joe who live around the corner from you that have set it up. And I'm not suggesting every single one is like that, but we we talk about these industries like they're faceless, mm. like they're not people that work in our community. They're not people who send their kids to the same school as us. You know, they may have been a reason that those individuals chose to go down that route, and we don't know what that is. Now, roll that back up to your systemic point that means less market access. That means that you as a consumer don't get what you want. But if there are enough of you around, then that should mean that there's enough space for another free house to pop up. 
because there's enough market demand, right? And so the challenge is actually how do we create enough market demand that there is a sustainable business model for people to choose independent only? Well... And so I just want to like wrap this back into the problem. So then if we follow that logic through, right, and we go consumer is king, and then we look at these layers and layers and layers of regulatory uh, stuff that we're facing as an industry, and, you know, I don't want to go into massive detail, but we've just had... There are four lots of labelling changes that are on the horizon, which sounds like a labelling change, but is actually got all of the regulatory stuff in behind that, that that adds costs to breweries. There's the potential for one of the largest increases in excise in many, many years. And we can talk about excise Mm. if you want, but that's that's, um, pegged to inflation. Um, We've got... um, uh, we've got a potential container deposit scheme being posed that is hugely costly to industry. Um, and so, you know, we've got supermarket chains that have got um, their own requirements. We've got pallet shortages worldwide. We have aluminium shortages. And so you roll all of this in together and you go, it's hard mm. to make a buck on beer. Seriously. Right? It just is hard and so you put all of that with consumer demand well beer prices are going to go up because our our brewers just cannot absorb those costs any further and so you know the flag that I would be waving which is rather than fighting the type taps conversation is all of these cumulative price cost pressures mean that we could lose that long tail of breweries and we could lose small breweries supporting local communities. And so it's it's crap that in Kingsland you have to go a suburb over. But imagine if you were in Taranaki and, like, you know, your four craft breweries got wiped out mm. because they just can't survive. You know, Hawke's Bay. You, these little communities where actually the pub, that local independent brewery, family-owned brewery is the only one providing that um, that kind of community social atmosphere and the independent beer, good quality beer and all of the things we talked about, you know, that's actually far more problematic than, frankly, one suburb over. I mean, I know that doesn't solve, oh, I know that doesn't solve your it's problem. It's a small problem to have, when, really. It's, I know, but I'm laughing because when I roll that up to the big industry problem, this is what we're saying to government. We're saying, hey, guys, do we really, you know... Everybody is doing better. People are drinking less. They're drinking more responsibly. They're drinking in family-friendly locations because of the rise of this movement of craft and different ways of drinking and, and innovation and low-no alcohol and, and all of the being more inclusive and all of those reasons are, are creating a much more positive relationship for people with alcohol. And over-regulation or the cumulative impacts of seemingly individually reasonable pieces of regulation could have a detrimental impact on our on our beer market in New Zealand and and that's not good. Okay so I know you don't have much time but maybe you could um, (laughs) just those that hundred things you just listed maybe you could just go into a little bit more detail about some of uh, well maybe the container deposit and just some of the things that you think could be um, big problems on the horizon. Yeah, look, I think, you know, um, 
consumers should keep an consumers industry should keep an eye on uh, the container deposit um, scheme and I use stuff because um, you know government are yet to release uh, information or sort of public consultation specifically on that uh, deposit scheme um, and you know we as an industry association have struggled and I will say this is a place where were it not for big beer we wouldn't get have any ability to provide input um, they have been very good at ensuring that the Brewers Guild receives information and can if possible provide feedback um, but you know that that is a cost borne by the manufacturer of products and actually really early on the data didn't necessarily support that the investment into a container deposit scheme was going to achieve the recycling and environmentally sustainable outputs that we so desperately need in New Zealand. There were other methodologies, but those other methodologies were hard and were not putting all of the costs on industry. And so um, I definitely think that's one to watch. It will have a price impact on breweries in New Zealand uh, on cost and therefore price. Um, and then the next one to watch, I think, is um, energy labelling, which is our next sort of um, horse out of the gate in terms of labelling. And this is just sort of interesting, but alcohol is um, the only food and beverage product that is currently excluded from energy labelling requirements. Mm. Um, and so for ZANS, uh, Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, so this is across um, Australia and New Zealand, are now looking at, well, what if anything should happen with energy labelling on alcohol-related products, beer being one of them. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting because no alcohol beer needs to be labelled like all other mm. beverage products, but beer does not. So um, what is reasonable from a technical perspective? What does it mean in terms of testing? Not all our breweries have access to the right equipment to undertake the testing. What does it mean for speed to market? So there's a lot of technicality in terms of how do we design something if we do design something. Um, but it's not unreasonable that if we are to be considered a food and beverage product that, you know, we should be labelled like all other food and beverage products. Well, what about wine? Um, so wine would be included in the standards mm. that get created as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that's on the horizon. And so I would be saying watch those two. And then I also think, um, you know, the third one is obviously excise. What happens with excise over the next... Uh, so excise comes in on the 1st of July each year. Right now, the government will be starting to put together their sort of projections, but it's it's tied to inflation, you know, CPI, and that's had a massive increase. So it could be a large increase. And again, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you ask me, cumulatively, it doesn't mean good things. Um, so... I would say, you know, so the question is going to be, well, what can people do about it? I would say if you are a brewery, um, you know, when we send out a survey, the Brewers Guild sends out a survey and asks for feedback and gathers information, um, participate, you know, we ask for input. You're all, you're all busy, um, but, you know, without that input, we can't effectively advocate. Um, so if you're a brewery, send in your information, give us what we can so we can advocate for the industry as a whole. And if you're a consumer 
and you don't want price increases because you want to support it, then support your brewery um, in making that clear. So. Okay, well, the last point I'm keen to hear from you on is not all breweries are part of the Brewers Guild. In fact, there are, no, there are loads of breweries that are not part of the Guild. And yep. the Brewers Guild advocates for every brewery. So basically yep. all these people that aren't members are getting a bloody free ride on, on yep. your hard work. So yep. uh, maybe you could talk to those breweries about why they should join. And, you know, it, it, it does cost money, as you've talked about. So what, it does cost what money. do you get for the money and why is it worthwhile being part of the guild? I mean, I think there are two things. Um, you know, what I always hear is what's in it for mm. me. What's in it for me as an individual brewery? Um, and I think those things are, you know, really basic. Um, you know, A, you get discounts into all of the awards and events. You get access to all of the member resources. So salary surveys, workforce reports, health and safety guides, food standards guides, employment agreement templates, standards of conduct. Um, you can access all, all of... Um, all of the material that's been produced on uh, export, so on and so forth. So, you know, like in terms of tangible resources, there's heaps of heaps of them in there. You get access to a network of people. You have access to people like me. Um, but if there is an issue that you want to participate in and you think, oh, God, government's not doing enough of this or this is really happening to us, um, you can have your voice heard through the Brewers Guild by providing feedback. Um, each one of our brewing members gets to elect the board of the Brewers Guild. So if you don't think it's doing what you need to do now and you want to see change, you can affect that change. We're a member-based organisation. Um, and so, you know, that's what's in it for you as an individual. You can make all of those changes. But I think I would step back from that and go, well, what was the intent of the Brewers Guild? And it comes down to it's easy to to grumble about things not being great but the only way it's going to be great is if if you kind of pay in and support it to do the work you know as i said as a guild we know absolutely what needs to take place in a whole host of areas but our primary funding is through um our membership fees and um the more breweries that pay in the more that we can do for everyone um, and certainly we try to be as inclusive as possible, but sometimes it is incredibly frustrating when I receive an email from someone saying, you haven't done X, Y and Z, and they're not a member of the Brewers Guild. Um, and, and I would love to do that task and I say, yes, that's number 165 on my list, but I just, we just can't get to it with the resources. Um, and, you know, that's why having the big breweries is so important for us because, you know, they represent a massive amount of the funding for us um, and, and we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing today. So I would say, you know, like do it, do it for your own benefits, those individual items that you get. Get the discounts, do that. Do it for being part of the team, you know. Support your other communities, get advice, seek feedback and then do it for the betterment of the industry so that you have the tools, the big sort of macroeconomic tools at your disposal so that your business can grow. Um, so, you know, that would be my pitch. And then the last benefit that we provide, and I just want to touch on this because it's, it's my baby, um, is beer tourism. Yeah. 
And so the Brewers Guild have created the NZ Ale Trail. It's not everything we want it to be, but it's certainly a really good start. Um, you know, when I started a few years ago, I was pretty clear that New Zealand was behind on the space of beer tourism. Um, and I think we're now, you know, really getting the eye of government and the ear of government when it comes to tourism, beer as a tourism product. Um, we have breweries in all our regions in New Zealand. People will travel to New Zealand for our beer and we have great beer offerings. And so, you know, the NZ Ale Trail is a product that, you know, you can find the local best beer experiences in New Zealand. You can find them in your local area. Uh, all of our members are freely advertised and promoted on the Ale Trail um, and we promote that instead of promoting any single one of our members. So we get to say, hey, industry, hey, consumer, come and find all of our members at once. Um, and so, you know, if you're thinking about joining, you can get on the Ale Trail that we promote as a product for people, consumers to find um, beer products. And I think, you know, beer tourism and, and pushing out with government and making that change has been um, really a massive success in the last few years. And I'm really, you know, I love... I will travel for beer. I'll travel anywhere to, to go see some of my breweries. And I just think, um, you know, that's something I'm really passionate about is making sure that we have the best beer offerings everywhere in the country um, so that, you know, we can support beer tourism. Well, that's a pretty solid pitch. Hopefully we've got a, uh, <laughs> hopefully we've got a couple of brewers listing along that, uh, that will be tipped over by that because, yeah, I, I don't know how it Get involved. Would be <laughs> Get involved, absolutely. All right, well, massive thanks for taking the time out. Um, thanks, Luke. Appreciate the interest for sure. You know, we're always looking at ways that we can communicate better. And so I hope, folks, you know, this takes away some of the, um, you know, the noise. And I'm sure Mel or Kelly would be happy to do it again in the future if there's sort of big issues that come up. Yeah, that'd be great to have them on the podcast in a, a few months or even a year, just about news and developments yeah. and to talk about the amazing COVID recovery that all of our brewers yeah. are doing, hopefully. Oh, come on, Auckland. <laughs> yeah. God, it's been uh, well over three months. It's uh, going to be four months that our bars would have been closed. It's just, I, it, I mean, I don't want to go back to the keg excise relief business, but it just, I just, I don't want to say pray because that's. I just want them, I want all of our breweries to get through it um, and for that we need hospitality to get through it and I just hope we can thrive over the summer. Yep. Same. All right, well, that's a good note to finish on. Cool. Thanks again. Thanks, Luke. Thanks Cheers. for your time. See ya.